You're listening to Truth and Narrative, the show that cuts through today's media narratives and tries to find the truth. And now your hosts, Will and Gabe. Hey, Will, how was your week? I had a great week, Gabe. And well, it's, uh, I believe it's Halloween in America or Halloween Eve. So just want to say a happy holiday to you and all the other people across the United States. Well, thank you. I just had an almond joy to celebrate. An almond joy is the perfect Halloween trick-or-treat candy, isn't it? Oh, amen. Amen. Someday I'm going to be rich and I'm going to hand out full-size Snickers bars. I'm going to be that house. Yeah, if you do that, you will absolutely be the most popular house on the block. (laughs) (laughs) That set up a haunted house in that backyard. Great idea. So we we are less than a week away from what could be a momentous occasion. Have you been thinking about the election? Do you have any predictions for us, Gabe? Uh, I'm thinking red wave. I'm thinking White House, Senate, and House, all red. Either that or civil war. Well, no, there's a good chance we'll have some kind of insurrection when that happens. Uh, it'll be like 2016 on steroids. Walmart's already moving all the guns and ammo out of the display cases. Uh, that's probably a good idea. I've seen multiple articles about people around the country uh, stockpiling goods for quote-unquote civil unrest. Well, if you think about all the possibilities of our election, uh, you know, civil unrest is probably one of those possible outcomes. Would you agree? Oh, I think it's... uh, No, actually, I disagree. I think it is a certainty. Mm. If Trump wins, you're going to have massive riots... And you're going to have massive riots anyway, I think, just to – there are going to be so many legal challenges during the ballot hemming process that you're going to have Dem- Democrat operatives rioting in the streets in order to put pressure on judges to find for the Democrat side in the legal disputes. And if, uh, if, if Biden wins, you're going to see riots in the streets if only to coerce him to be a leftist instead of a centrist. To coerce him? So, so you're saying that there's pressure on the left? on Biden, that's going to kind of uh, shape his actions and shape his, uh, you know, his behavior as a candidate or president? Well, I don't think they're going to need much, but I think they're going to use much. Yeah. I, 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 think, that, uh, I, I think that Biden is, uh, as Joe Rogan famously put it, like going for a, walk, a long walk in the woods at night in the dark with a uh, flashlight with dying batteries. But yeah, I think that there is going, you're going to see Antifa, you're going to see the Nefarious elements who hijack the BLM protests. You're going to see uh, a lot of leftist elements rioting, looting, etc. They're going to riot and loot if Trump is considered the winner or at least ahead in order to put pressure on the public officials as they're counting the votes to, to make decision calls, make decisions in favor of Democrats. And if Biden wins, they, they need to make sure that um, he listens to the radical wing of the party, the socialists, the AOCs. The Marxists. Well, you need to see that happening. Uh, you know, we've, we've just gone through a summer of complete unrest, most of it uh, coming from the left. I wonder, there's a lot of people who might say, hey, the right might write too. Maybe the right's writing would be a little bit different. Uh, it might not be so much about looting, but, uh, you know, people might wonder or people might think that, hey, you know, some of these so-called white supremacists and all that type of thing. They're going to take to their streets with their weapons, their automatic weapons. They're going to kidnap governors from Michigan. They're going to do all kinds of dangerous stuff. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Uh-huh. The guys that wanted to kidnap the Michigan governor also wanted to assassinate President Trump. So please explain exactly. to me how that makes them. Yeah, yeah. Please explain Talk to me how that makes Tell us about that. I have not heard that part of the story. Oh, my God. Yeah. The, the Well, first off, when the, the bus was first made and their um, – the news was first circulated. They were characterized as right-wing, blah, blah, blah. But then people started, as, as the public does, sleuthing around social media and whatnot. They found videos of these guys ranting about how Trump is a tyrant. They found that uh, these guys had, like, anarchy flags in their bedrooms. This is uh, – th- th- it's not exactly right-wing territory there. These guys are – they're, they're boogaloo. They're, they're small government in, in philosophy. They're accelerationist in philosophy. They are – anarchist um and just like every anarchist movement you've got your your nut jobs you've got people who are fairly practical and whatnot but these guys um 
there's even some speculation now that uh, the, the FBI may have cajoled them to do into doing something. You, you know how there's been, been um, allegations for years that the FBI you know, inserts undercovers or uh, CIs into, into groups, and they get people, they find people who are angry but not focused, and they sort of give them a direction, and then, then they swoop in and they bust them and they say, hey, we broke up this ring that when you really dig deep into it, you really think, would it really have been a ring if you, you hadn't been there giving them all of the parts that they needed and, and pushing them to take the next step, eight steps along the way? Uh, this is one of those things. But when, when you dig into their communications, yeah, they, they, they are anti-Whitmer, anti-Trump, anti-everything but uh, freedom. So these guys are not... Okay, so let me, you know, the narrative is these guys are white supremacists, they are libertarians. You're saying they're not? Are you saying that they're, uh, you know, not your typical right-wingers, Trump voters? If they're right-wing, then apparently Trump isn't because they were anti-Trump. They, they, they ranted about how Trump is a tyrant, Whitmer's a tyrant. So I find that interesting. You know, I'm over here and uh, I, I, you know, I have to admit, I do not pay attention to the news as I once did. And I spent a lot of time avoiding news, but, you know... When you're online, you come across headlines, you come across videos. So I, I know the gist of what's going on, but, you know, I have never in the past couple of weeks seen any articles that talk about, you know, these guys in any kind of balanced way. You know, they you know, they, they don't mention accelerationism or even book alluded. It's just Trump voters with guns want to kidnap the Michigan, Michigan government. That's been the headline. That's the here's, here's an article from the Detroit News from October 9th. Alleged Whitmer kidnapping plotter posted anti-Trump video. Let's see. see. At one point, he says, Trump is not your friend, dude. It amazes me that people actually like believe that when he's shown over and over and over again that he's a tyrant. Every single person that works for government is your enemy, dude. Well, uh, you know, I don't think most right-wingers use the word dude that often, so I try to... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, you know, we're talking about unrest, we're, we're talking about, you know, people taking to the street, you know, there, there's a lot of crazy going on in America right now. We've got this coronavirus, we've got, uh, you know, we've got Antifa out there, we've got, we've got good people lining up, buying guns to defend themselves. Uh, you know, in, in this particular moment in history, you know, it's quite interesting, but in this particular moment of history, I find myself wondering about our future. And, you know, you shared a book with me, I, you know, I appreciate it. It's called The People's Republic. And I'm, I'm just getting into the meat of this book, but, you know, just for our people, just for the people out there, the, the audience who might not know about this book, I definitely recommend it. And it's kind of predicting a dystopian future of America, an America that is split between areas controlled by blue and areas controlled by red. And to make a long story short, you do not want to live in blue America. You'd rather live in red America. And like we were discussing a little bit earlier, you know, this book really resonated with me because, you know, I've got family in Red America. I, I spent time in the military, and I would say my entire 10 years in the military was spent with Red America or in Red America. And I like it. I like Red America. I like Blue America, too. But I also can see where this book is reflecting reality in that, you know, big cities like Chicago, Detroit, Michigan, cities that I know very well, New York City, they are becoming hellholes, unlivable, places uh, mm-hmm. in Indiana, you know, which are much more stable and, and quite nice places to live. So the way I see this book is here, here's a thinking man, and he has basically performed a thought experiment, which says, what's going to happen if AOC and the liberals get their way? What, what kind of America are we looking at? And that America kind of sucks. But... <laughs> But there's a lot of people that I know, probably most of my friends, even my family, who would say that that book is nonsense, it's white supremacist trash, it's Trumpism, blah, 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 blah. So you're familiar with the book. What do you think about this premise? Is, is, is it really that bad uh, if, if the rules are in control? Here's, you know, it, it's really weird. When we first started discussing the riots this, this year, one of the things that I've said from the start, you know, when people talk about defund the police and whatnot, I have my objections to that. I have my objections to the riots, etc. But these these riots and these defund the police movements are all concentrated in blue strongholds, multi generational, single party run cities, where law enforcement is resented by the populace because they're used to shake down the populace and they're used to maintain order with a firm grip. 
in New York City, if the police back off one iota from some some pretty invasive policing techniques, chaos starts to break out. It's and this is a result of a lot of policies, including making it nearly impossible for an average person to possess the means to defend themselves against predators. So now the predators are empowered, and the only thing holding them in check is law enforcement doing policies like stop and frisk. And that's that's why you have these populations resenting law enforcement so much, and that's one reason that you have these these riots and this pent up rage. And it, it's these are blue cities. This is single-party cities. I mean, Bloomberg was a Republican nominally, but it wasn't very long before he was on the Democratic debate stage as a presidential candidate. So even even the Republicans in these areas are, um, well, let's just say they, they, they wouldn't be comfortable in a Republican convention in flyover country. I think. Uh, I think that we see examples of this. Uh, when he talks about in the, in the book, he talks about the in, in blue America, you have the walled enclaves where the wealthy are separated from the riffraff. And those are the areas where you have working motor vehicles and, and electricity, etc. That's just a standard model for places like Brazil and Venezuela and, and whatnot, where you've had bouts of socialism and bouts of authoritarian government control and you wind up losing a middle class you have no transition you have to you have people who have things worth stealing and you have people with empty bellies and you need walls to separate them and i think that uh when, when you have today's american socialists and democratic socialist wannabes they say, well, we don't want Venezuela, we want Sweden. Well, you know what the Venezuelans wanted Sweden. So how do you, what about your policies indicates that you're going to produce Sweden instead of Venezuela? I mean, let's pretend Sweden's a utopia and doesn't have issues. Let's, let's pretend that that's something we want. How, how do, what about your policies indicates that you're going to be implementing Sweden instead of Venezuela? Are you going to have a super low corporate income tax rate so that people are, incur- people are encouraged to reinvest in corporations and in economic growth? No, no, you're not. You believe in taxing the shit out of corporations. That's Venezuela, not Sweden. Are you going to have a homogenous culture society or are you going to have a more mixed culture society? Because that's another difference between Venezuela and Sweden. Uh, you're going to implement these policies, but you're following every step of the way the path of Venezuela, not the path of Sweden. And I think that's what the book describes is a group of people who take these high ideals that some of them might actually believe in and some of them just see it as a convenient convenient rhetoric to gain power and wealth, and they build a society around it, and they build Venezuelas. So which... Which path are Americans, is the American left setting us on? What you know, you talk about corporate tax, you know, that's certainly something big, but you know, the typical left of center or even left wing American citizen might say, Hey, you're right. You're right, Gabe. We want we want Sweden, we want Finland, we don't want Venezuela. And hey, that's what we're doing. That's why we're trying to win elections so that we can make America into a Sweden or into a France. States with high functioning social welfare, where the people don't have to worry about their next meal. That's what AOC and the left would say. Yeah, in the first place, that's not what Sweden and France really are. If you, if you, so even if you wanted to say that they're they're working toward that coalition or not, that's really not what Sweden and France are. For instance, Sweden has a ton of, I believe it's one of the states with a ton of oil reserves. But they built a lot of wealth in the past, and they are largely destroying it through their social welfare state, which is now kind of collapsing a bit. They've drastically reduced their GDP uh, growth. They, they're, they're eating a lot of their seed corn. As for France, they've got a lot of issues with – when they have riots, they tend to involve a lot of unemployed under-30s who find it very difficult to get employed because there's so much employment security that employers are terrified to hire people. So if you don't know someone, if you don't have a track record, et cetera, if you're, trying, if you're an immigrant trying to assimilate into society, it's very, very difficult to become employed because someone's got to take a huge risk on you. Uh, th- these policies are created, they're, they're really not spectacular. But if you look here at the United States, look at where these uh, socialist philosophies have one-party rule here in the United States. Go out to California, where they have they, they have rolling blackouts. It, it, they're phasing out gasoline vehicles. They're going to be all electric cars soon, but they can't even maintain the electric grid to plug those cars into. 
they have rolling blackouts because they, they instead of allowing their electric companies to do routine maintenance for the past 30 years, they've been forcing them to buy windmills and subsidies and carbon offsets. The, 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 the average family can't afford air conditioning in many cases. It's very common on a 100-degree day when the, the winds are blowing in to find in poorer parts of, the, of L.A., inland, you find that Walmart is packed with extended with ex, you find Walmart packed with extended families who are spending the day there so that grandma doesn't get dehydrated and die because they can't afford air conditioning and Walmart has air conditioning. San Francisco is a city where the dogs have to evade human poo on the sidewalks. There are actual apps that you can download that should the track poo human fecal release reports. So that you can say, oh, there's a lot of people copying a squat in this neighborhood. I'm going to walk the long way to get to my destination. Uh, you have communities, rural communities, that are losing their water because it's being taken from them to support cities because they don't have a proper representation system. You have people in Northern California actually suing the state in federal court saying that they no longer have a representative form of government because the government is so concentrated toward the cities. So they're suing to create a new state, the state of Jefferson, that would include Northern California and Southern Oregon. There are, there are so many issues in that state. Go to New York, go to New York State, where the government is so authoritarian that the governor forced is one of five governors who forced COVID-positive patients into nursing homes where the elderly are the most vulnerable possible COVID victims. And he forces COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the powerful nursing home lobby making campaign contributions and lobbying him hard. And it had nothing to do with the fact that it was very lucrative for them to take COVID cases. But he, he forces COVID-positive patients into nursing homes, driving the state's death rate up fantastically. You don't have to look overseas to see, okay, what are these guys doing? You can look overseas and say, what policies are these guys proposing, and does that match more utopian socialism or dystopian socialism? You can just look at the examples right here in the United States and say, damn, I wouldn't want to live there. Are there any places in America that are red that we would say the same thing? Right? Are there any bad Republican governors right now? Are there any poorly run single-party cities or state that you see the same characteristics of a state like California? You know what? I've asked this question and a bunch of variations. And it's interesting. Have you ever seen the C. Buscemi series, Boardwalk Empire? Absolutely. It's one of my favorites of all time. Isn't it fantastic? The interesting thing there is that they're showing turn of the 20th century Republican corruption. They're showing a Republican machine in action. And Republican corruption. I don't think Republican corruption works in that ex to that extent in quite that manner anymore. It, it definitely still exists. I think it's tied more into the military-industrial complex at the national level. I think that's the vestige of the Reagan military expansion. And I think at the uh, state and local level, you have it in the uh, you have a lot of it in the prison-industrial complex, and you have a lot of it in uh, well, just your routine government corruption. I, I come from Ohio. In Ohio, a while back, there was an incident with the, the – I'm trying to remember here. Someone was supposed to manage the state pension fund and hired managers um, at, an, at a rate that I'm sure he felt was defensible. And they bought a bunch of gold coins. I'm not sure if it was numismatic or bullion. I think it might have been numismatic, which means you know, collectible coins, not, not purchased just for their value as an ounce of gold. But then somebody went to do an audit, and there was nothing in the vault. Uh, there was an issue a while back of the governor's – I don't think it's a current governor. I think it might have been the previous one. Uh, his wife had a financial interest in a company that was going to get the contract to do mandatory drug testing for welfare recipients. You do get corruption with Republican administrations. You do get corruption with Republican politicians. As a general rule of thumb, if someone's a politician, they're a scumbag to begin with. And the only question is, what is the flavor of their scumbaggery and how do you hold it in check? It's not hard and fast. It's not universal. But I, I find that it's a good acid test for, for how to approach finding where the corruption is. I, I, I think part of the thing is that it's more difficult for Republicans to get control of a single-party mission. Republican voters have a tendency to 
not like the idea of government handouts, uh, not like the idea of government spending money. Uh, and so it becomes a little bit more difficult to buy party party loyalty by saying, hey, here's a benefit we're going to give you. It's possible. It has to be disguised a little bit. It has to have a little bit more puffery, more flavor around it. But I, I think you, you just – you don't get the same concentrations of people together reinforcing that, hey, this is a good thing. So you don't get the same uh, level of corruption being possible. It's a theory I'm working with. I'm not 100% convinced of it. But it just seems like the more densely packed an urban area is – the more corrupt the single party system you can get. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I understand, and, and I like the theory. Uh, I think it's a theory we ought to work on uh, in the coming months. But, you know, when I think about Malcolm Thompson's 1920s Atlantic City, a couple of things come to mind. Number one, there was a great deal of corruption. Number two, I don't want to say it was a victimless crime. I'm not saying that because, you know, if you watch Boardwalk Empire, there was a lot of people who came to a bad end. Yeah. Uh, but Lucky Thompson ran things, and when he was in control, people could make money. Uh, people were relatively safe. So my question, I'm going to throw it back at you, is, yeah, corruption is one thing. And we know that there's corruption in politics. Of course there is. There's, there's always been. But my question is, you know, can we prove, can we prove convincingly that red America is governed better than blue America? Because that's the premise of the People's Republic, I think. Yeah. How would, and you, I think, how would, you, that? How would you argue that? I, I think it comes down to what is better when you say is governed better what is governing better in in red america okay, so the, there seems the to be a go ahead uh, real quick the difference is uh, chicago and lafayette indiana that's the difference so is lafayette indiana better and how and why i would say lafayette probably is i've never been to lafayette but i have lived south of chicago what you've described to me about lafayette it sounds it sounds like a place where people are, on one hand, permitted to possess the tools to defend themselves against uh, predators, and he, on the other hand, they're, they're left the hell alone by law enforcement unless there is a darn good reason to hassle them. You have a government philosophy that's, that's different from we're going to uh, maintain order on the one hand, and we're going to knock out as many teeth as we have to, to... Go about your business, on the other hand. Unless you're bothering someone, why would government uh, interact with you? Uh, and I think that that's the difference between warrior cop and officer friendly. And that's a big difference between the, the, the back the blue versus defund the police in, the, in what, what your, your populace winds up rallying for or rioting for. Is that that governing philosophy of should you be free to pursue your life, or should you be forced and hassled at every step of the way by an authoritarian overseer? I think that's the difference between Chicago and Lafayette. I think that's the difference between Red America and Blue America, and I think that's the difference between a population looking for an excuse to riot and loot and burn, and a population that's terrified that that's going to come to their door. Hmm. So there's a couple of couple of different points to that, a couple of different aspects. So, you know, it's the left who right now, you know, in my Facebook feed, every post from someone on the left is talking about America's, America has become a fascist country. Hey, you there? A couple of times. And, uh, okay. Hey, hey, you cut out for a minute. You said every post on the left says America has become a fascist country. Yes, but they but they're blaming the right. So it sounds when you talk, you're 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 blaming the left. So if I'm if I'm trying to figure out what's the truth, what what's your argument? You know, why does the left think that the government is so authoritarian, and the right think that the government is so, so authoritarian? What, where's the contradiction here? Who's wrong? Who's right? You know, I, I was uh, Tim Pool the other day had uh, self identified socialist anti-fascist on. I think the guy's name is Bausch. And I, I couldn't stand him for long segments. Just his voice sounds so arrogant. It was really like nails on, cho on a chalkboard. But I, I forced myself to listen in intervals uh, just because it's good practice. But he, he, he was talking at one point about uh, 
Trump being fascist. And so so Poole asked him to define what is fascist to you. And this is something that this was very eye opening to me because I've actually studied history and studied fascism. Uh, fascism is a particular pol way of organizing politically and economically. Uh, when, when you get into the economic system, you had uh, governments like Italy and Germany. They would nationalize companies or industries, but they didn't generally do that unless they had to. What they preferred to do is license them so that they would have an owner or a corporation that they could blame when things go wrong and yank the license away and give it to someone else. And that way, by, by adding that step between the government, where they, they, they have to follow the government orders because they could lose the license, they have to do what the government wants them to do as though they were government-owned, but there's that step, there's that group of people who are owners so that they can take the heat when things go wrong. That extra step, that's the difference between socialism and fascism economically. And then when you look at the political organizing, you look at the, the brown shirts, you look at the, the things like uh, violent, uh, an emphasis on violently suppressing political dissent, other opinions, other voices. Uh, that, to me, has always been fascism. Then when you get this guy, Vouch, giving his definition, he completely doesn't even mention any of that stuff. He talks about how, well, it's using nationalism to... to forge national will and blah, 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 and this and that, and all of this vague stuff that's really not especially black and white, really not especially um, quantifiable, that, that, that really, uh, it, it was weird to me. He has a completely different view of the world, a completely different metric, and it's mush. It's like nailing jello to the wall. If you, if you took his criteria and you really tried to analyze it and to say, okay, what's the limiting principle on this? What's the limiting principle on that? What separates this system that meets these criteria from another system that meets these criteria because they both can? It wouldn't hold up to rigorous examination. I think we have a lot of people and, and this is really held, holds up through four or five years now of actually asking, talking to people, questioning people, trying to adopt rigorous examination. There's an awful lot of people who they, they just can't handle the cognitive dissonance of rigorous examination that says, oh, maybe my beliefs aren't internally consistent and I should modify them. And I think we've got a lot of that. On, I think we have a lot more of that on the left than on the right. And my evidence for that would be the fact that so many people who see principle ahead of tribe move, have moved from left to right without changing their beliefs, without changing the principles they stand for, than the other way around. You know, I, I like something that you just said. You said principle versus tribe. That is a, that's interesting. Unpack that. Give, give me an example. Okay. Alan Dershowitz. Man has been a left-winger all his life. But a few years ago, he resigned from the board of the ACLU, if I recall correctly, because the ACLU no longer defends free speech. Hey, Gabe, Gabe, I lost everything after you said you said Alan Dershowitz, and then it cut out. So can you start okay. that one? Sure. If I recall correctly, Alan Dershowitz resigned from the board of directors of the ACLU because the ACLU no longer sees free speech as a moral absolute to defend. The ACLU has said that if a Skokie case came up today, they wouldn't defend it. Because they no longer support free speech, they now believe that people who think differently from them should have their voices silenced. Because orange man bad. That is an institution sacrificing their defining principles for their tribe. And Alan Dershowitz, I would consider him a left liberal. Uh, he, he may disagree with me on many things politically, and I may disagree with him, but he has come to his tribe by means of his principles. And when the tribe departed them, he departed the tribe. And so he is a left liberal who will probably never call himself conservative or Republican, but who nonetheless is going to champion people that the left now uh, sidelines, now scapegoats, now deplatforms, now, um, uh, what's the word? When you cut someone out of society. Anyway. Cutting, cutting someone out of society. Uh, uh, what's that? You mean cancel? Cancel? Sure. Yeah, cancel culture. Uh, he, 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 he defended, he was writing a book to defend 
Hillary because he believed Republicans would try to impeach her without good cause, and then Democrats tried to impeach Trump without good cause and succeeded, and he defended Trump because he was working on the principle of these are the reasons that are good cause for impeachment. This is what it takes. This is what a high crime is. This is what a high misdemeanor is. This is what the language of the 1700s was referencing with the jurisprudence of that era, what it meant when this constitution was ratified. These are the standards that it should meet today. And he was he advocated that principle, even though he can't stand President Trump, he advocated that principle in defense of President Trump because it's the principle, not the tribe. That's an example of principle versus tribe. I see. I see. Now, here's the thing. I would say that there are many Americans on both sides of the aisle who think that it should be tribe before principle. And again, I'm including the right because I like your example. I accept your example. But what about, you know, what about uh, Republicans who, and this is not a, a, an attack on the, on the president, it's just an example. What about Republicans who believe themselves to be individuals, perhaps members of the religious right? But they support President Trump, who has a checkered family history, we would say, and has not always been the best Christian. Let's just put it that way. But they support him anyway. Is that not an example of tribe before principle? You know what? No. I, I think that I think that, that was resolved in 1996 with the impeachment of President Clinton. The, okay. the man had uh, the man turned an intern not much older than his daughter into a human humidor in the Oval Office, and then he lied about it perjured himself under oath during a deposition for a lawsuit over sexual harassment where an attorney was trying to probe patterns of behavior and then he faced impeachment for perjury and I was 16 years old at the time so I didn't hear the argument that perjury isn't necessarily a high crime or a high misdemeanor. I would love to hear more about Dershowitz's argument over that, what is, what isn't, why perjury doesn't qualify and whether or not that means that Martha Stewart should have gotten off the should have gotten a later sentence for her supposedly lying to a federal agent. I I, I have a great deal. I, I think at that point with that impeachment saga with with that after all of the years of FDR after all of the years of JFK after all of the shenanigans going on there, you have a president with uh, personal peccadillos in his past. And honestly, I think if they were still conducting them today, the White House press corps wouldn't cover up for him the way they did JFK and FDR. I think that we'd know if he was still running around today. I don't know where he'd find the time. He does, what, like eight rallies a day now? In addition to three and four and five and six Middle East peace deals? And an occasional saber rattling with uh, Kim Jong-un? I I think that for a long time, Republicans have tried to hold up the president as someone that the president should be someone that I can tell my kids you want to grow up to be that person you want to look to that person for moral guidance their example and I just I don't think we live in an age where you can expect that of the president I don't think our culture would permit someone who is so for lack of a better word righteous to rise to the presidency there was a great great debate over when Oprah was considering running and I think it was Ben Shapiro had the best one Oprah is practically virginal. She is all of everyone projects all of the best onto her. She is seen as you get a car, you get a car. She's the great American self-made billionaire story, pulling herself up from from very humble beginnings, always wanting the best for everyone. So every scandal that comes up, every time she broke wind in church on a Sunday, it's going to be front page news. Trump, on the other hand, is a mud monster. We live in a social media environment. We live in, for the first time in history, a, 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 an environment where there's no birth of content. People aren't trying to find content anymore. We have too much. We need help to sort through it all. Everyone's writing. Everyone's talking. Everyone's producing content, and they're all looking for something sensational. But Trump's a mud monster. When they fling that mud onto him and they find that scandal to try to throw at him, it's not, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it blends right into what's already there. Oprah is a white gown. Every fleck of dirt is going to show, and running for office means dirt. I, I think the thing about Trump is that how, whatever his personal peccadillos have been, he's honest. I, I know people like to claim he's the lyingest president ever. These are the same people who claim that Obama's only, only scandal is wearing a tan suit. I, I don't look to a politician and assume they're telling the truth generally, and I think anyone who does is a little bit naive and needs to wipe some of the rose tint off their glasses. I, I, I think with, with Trump... 
he is honest in that he says, yep, I've had my peccadillos. Yep, I'm a billionaire. Yep, I want you to be a billionaire too. Oh, gee, you think that it, I, it's arrogant that I take my dumps in a golden toilet. Well, guess what? I want you to be able to have a golden toilet too, and I'm not going to apologize. And I, I don't think that there's anything particularly irreligious about that. About, about supporting someone for that. I, I don't know where there is some sort of biblical mandate that the Israelis should have rejected freedom from the Philistines because Samson was not a good was not a good and religious man. He was called by God while sitting in a brothel. <laughs> okay. Well, that kind of makes sense. I'm not fully on board with it. I don't fully agree, but uh, I like the argument. The argument is rational. It makes sense. Uh, you know, going back to the whole thing, principle versus tribe, I think that that's what's missing in our democracy right now. And I think without that, you know, without individuals who are willing to commit to principles, and as far as I'm concerned, American principles, if people in America are not willing to commit to a set of principles, which include the Constitution, First Amendment, the Second Amendment, I'm not sure if we can have a successful democracy, and that kind of brings us, you know, kind of full circle. I think we've got this election coming up, and uh, there's, you know, there's going to be groups of people on either side. Don't know which exactly yet, but there's going to be groups of people who don't want to accept the result, and it's going to be a lot of tribalism going on, and maybe that's going to take us to the People's Republic one day. There's a little push to get uh, the the West Coast states to secede if Trump wins. They call it the Election Integrity Project. It's a bunch of Democrats and never Trumpers. Okay. Look it up. But here's my question for you. Go ahead. Okay. No, go ahead. Go ahead. We now know that the CIA and the FBI actively tried to rig a presidential election. They used five lies intelligence abuses. They used FISA abuses. They actively tried to rig a presidential election. And then when they failed, because with all of those sophisticated tools and machinery, they're still that incompetent. They tried to undo the presidential election. They tried a seditious conspiracy to undermine the incoming administration. We don't know of a single agent or officer who came forward of their own free will without being caught and blew the whistle on it. We don't know of anyone who put their, their principle, who put their constitution, who put their oath ahead of their pension to expose this plot who was from those agencies. Is it possible for the Republic to survive if the agencies continue to exist? Well, that's a big question. It starts off with a premise that I'm not sure I, uh, I'm not sure I agree with. Um, I'm not sure that the FBI and CIA actually tried to interfere with the uh, election and get someone elected to you know, what, what's your argument for that? What's your evidence? We got? Okay. I, all right. So let, let me try and collect my thoughts because this is going back a ways. I, I thought you were up, up on that. Um, oh, so what do you know about Obamagate, Spygate? You know, I, you know, like I said earlier, I've not been watching the details of the news because I think that we have got to the point where we're, we got banana republic stuff going on, whereas, you know, each side is trying to use national security agencies as weapons against each other. Each side is investigating each other. Each side is going after scandal. And I think both sides are guilty. So I did not pay attention to Obamagate. I did not. Okay. So as a candidate, candidate Donald Trump, the Hillary Clinton campaign hired a law firm to hired a law firm to no the DNC hired a law firm to hire a British spy to produce a dossier accusing Donald Trump of being a Russian agent. You've heard of the PP dossier? Yes, certainly. Okay. So anyone who thinks that the world's most famous germaphobe would hire foreign prostitutes to pee on a mattress in front of them and not think twice about, could this really, is this really likely to happen? Uh, anyway, then you had the Clinton campaign hiring Fusion GPS to produce stuff. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth. This, the FBI used the Fusion GPS stories to confirm the SEAL dossier. 
there were there was a lot of FISA records access abuse, a lot of database abuse. The FISA court had an, uh, I believe, an inspector general report. Uh, they cut off a certain type of access for, I think it was the FBI, because it was, there were so many queries that were not acceptable that were abusive. Uh, you had the unmasking scandal where Susan Rice's assistant uh, used her, uh, supposedly used her authority to unmask people in FISA uh, surveillance records to find out who was saying what. Uh, all of these things were done to look for ways to undermine the, the Trump campaign, to spy on the Trump campaign. Uh, you had a uh, naval officer who had been a CIA asset who they lied and said that he wasn't a CIA asset in order to say that his Russian contacts were suspicious in order to get a FISA warrant in order to surveil the Trump campaign. Now, FISA warrants, it's apparently a little more complicated, but a super dumbed down version. They're two and three hot warrants, and they're not, and they go all the way back. So if I have a FISA warrant, if someone gets a FISA warrant on me, they they not only have access to all of my electronic communications during the time period that the FISA warrant is accurate and going backward for as long as records exist, but they'll also have the access, the same access to all of the communications of everyone that I communicate with and possibly everyone that they communicate with. So if you want to spy on Trump, all you have to do is get a warrant to spy on someone that talks to him, that communicates with him. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you know, well, why? Tell me, tell me what's the motivation. Why would these people do this? They are supposed to be apolitical members of the government and exactly. the they, changes. Why? They, are, why they are supposed to be apolitical members of the government. But we have uh, Project Veritas videos from the early years of this administration showing that the federal bureaucracy is left-leaning, showing federal bureaucrats abusing their, their databases to perform political campaigns and, and activities for the left, showing them colluding with left-leaning organizations. We had in the prior administration, we had we had we now know thanks to the efforts of Judicial Watch that there were many department heads and leaders who had who had used email other than their government email for government communications. Jim Comey used his Gmail account for government communications. It's it, Hillary had her server. The head of the EPA had a, uh, a, a a fake account that she used to communicate with environmentalist groups. The um, the head of the IRS had her scandal uh, and had a separate e- email thing there they, they had built a, a massive network uh, like almost an alternative communication network that kept their most sensitive communications beyond the reach of public records law uh you have and that's just the political appointees the, the project veritas videos aren't political appointees that's career employees you're seeing where, where the the federal government, the the DC bureaucracy has grown so massively since 11 that you now have this this Mandarin class of rulers that are that they're they're insulated from the economic troubles of the rest of the country. They're insulated from recession, from what what have you, and they're, they're, they're they believe that their job is to rule the country. And now that there is a politician who's coming into office who doesn't believe that. Who believes that the voters should rule, that the voters should should do policy, who elected someone. Remember in the impeachment hearings, you had the former ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Yovanovitch, I believe her name was. She said that it was disconcerting that the president went against the consensus, the foreign policy consensus. And that is an entirely backward statement. That sums the whole thing up. She was testifying for the impeachment, not because she had any evidence of any criminal behavior, but because the president went against the foreign policy consensus. Under our constitutional system of government, there is not supposed to be a foreign policy consensus without the president. The president sets the foreign policy and the consensus is to form around that. If you can't support the president's foreign policy, you are supposed to resign. And we have we have developed over the past two decades this, this uh, Mandarin class of, of people who see them not as public servants, but as public rulers. And he's upsetting that apple cart. Did they behave this way during the Obama administration, or is this something that's new? I think that Obama shared their worldview, so it was harder to detect the cancer. Does that make sense? That makes sense, and it also comes brings me back to your original question. I think your original question was, can we live as a country without these agencies, without the FBI and CIA? And uh, my answer would be absolutely not. We need these people. Uh, and I'm just going to say it's, it can be considered a failure of 
leadership if the president himself cannot go along with his national security uh, agencies. Now, everything that you said makes perfect sense about this, this you know, over-empowered group of Mandarins since 9-11, but shouldn't the president be able to get along and cooperate with his own agencies? What, what kind of country would we be without the FBI and CIA? Well, I think for the first uh, century or more of the country, we didn't have an FBI and a CIA, and we experienced more profound prosperity, security, and growth than what we've had since we created them. I, I think that I think that Old Yeller was a very, very good boy, and he did a lot to protect and serve the family that, that he was there to protect and serve. And I think that one day he got rabies, and you can't be protected, you can't be served by any animal with rabies. So they took him out back behind the barn. They gave him a very merciful uh, send-off, and then they gave him a very re respectful uh, burial and service. And I think the FBI and CIA need that. Uh, I think they have rabies. I think that they are a cancer. They have become a cancer on the republic and need to be excised. I think that some of their functions can be shifted to other agencies. Harry Truman, by the, by the time he died, he said, he flat out said, if I had known what the CIA would become, I never would have signed it into law. It was originally supposed to do strategic analysis of the gather local news reporting from around the world and do strategic analysis. And maybe a little bit more than that, but not do all of these clandestine missions and secret wars and all of the things it does, overthrowing governments and all that. That was if, if that that was a big regret of Truman's. The FBI was never wasn't supposed to be a big intelligence agency. Now it is. Uh, it, it, it's the the uh, I, I think you can have a lot of the FBI's duties can be absorbed by the Marshal Service, and I think a lot of our foreign policy can be shifted to not require all of the capacities of these agencies anymore. Uh, take for instance the Syrian conflict. You know, you had the previous administration destabilizing Syria, trying to depose Assad so that we could control which direction a gas pipeline went, so that Putin didn't control the uh, gas and Europe had real competition and didn't just have to buy their pipeline gas from Russia, they had a second option. And I think it would have been Saudi-controlled gas or something, because right now their only gas pipeline is controlled by Russia. And the second pipeline, if Assad stays in power in Syria, will also be controlled by Russia. So th that was the thing with, with Syria. But then you have Trump comes into office, he doesn't want to spend uh, all this effort going into war in Syria trying to do, doing all the damage. So he pursues other means. He weakens the Iranian, uh, he, he, he forms alliances in the Middle East that weaken the Iranian sphere of influence. He beats, beats the crap out of uh, Russian forces in Syria and around the region. He uh, shames the Germans for accepting uh, cushy Russian, uh, uh, I don't want to say bribes, there, there might be legal connotations there, but uh, cushy Russian arrangements in order to get a Russian gas pipeline while the United States is massively subsidizing NATO. Uh, he, he's using other tools to counteract the pipeline issue and to weaken Russian influence in NATO nations instead. And I, I think we can do that. I think we can shift a lot of what we expect the FBI to do, what we expect the CIA to do. We can shift a lot of their duties to other agencies with similar missions for those duties. And we can eliminate a bunch of that stuff uh, and just find other ways to accomplish the same result. And I think we need to eliminate those agencies because they have, they have developed rabies. And the, the, you can't, no matter how much you love your dog, you can't let him sit and sleep at the foot of your bed once he's got rabies. You've got to put a bullet in his brain. Okay, so it sounds like you know this is a good way for us to uh, finish it off today because it sounds like you are kind of making a case or at least telling us some of the things you know that we might see with another four years of Donald Trump. So let's, let's finish it off this way. Tell us Trump, Trump wins the election next week. What can we look forward to over the next four years? I think we're going to see house cleaning in the senior executive service. I think uh, Haspel and Ray are gone day one. I'm wondering if he's going to uh, pardon WikiLeaks. Julian Assange. Yeah, I'm wondering if he's going to pardon Julian Assange, and I'm wondering if he's going to get the uh, DOJ to make the deal that Snowden is asking for. Snowden keeps saying that he'll, he'll be happy to come back to the United States if he's allowed to present a necessity defense in his trial. He'll stand trial. He just wants the right to present a necessity defense, a form of defense that I have been told is allowed in every form of criminal trial except for espionage. So if why, the DOJ... Why would, why, would, why would Donald Trump help these guys? These guys, you know, I think they're both assholes and uh, traitors. 
I think that Snowden and Assange exposed intelligence. Uh, they, they exposed intelligence abuses that, that later went on to try to rig presidential election. Uh, I think if you look at the case of Michael Flynn and, and you see what happened there with the unmasking phone call with the entrapment, with all of, with the January fifth meeting discussing the uh, the, the Logan Act. Uh, I, I think that you see how the intelligence uh, agencies have gone rogue. They've become a Praetorian guard trying to select the leadership and policy of the country instead of serving it. And I think that these guys have been instrumental in uh, showcasing that. And I think that's the reason. Um, you know, when, when, when MacArthur defied Truman's orders and he marched deep into North Korea and then uh, did he cross over into China or did he just threaten to? No, uh, he, he, uh, he didn't get too close, but he was you know, he definitely went against orders. He went against what his commander in chief wanted him to do. What did Truman do? Truman fired his ass. Well, that's that, that's the short version. But the long version is, how do you fire a general in the field deep behind enemy lines? That involved cutting off supplies to the troops, cutting off support to the troops. That involved an incredibly bloody, deadly, a dangerous, freezing, starving withdrawal from a lot of innocent troops who did nothing more than their duty and following the orders of the general who went rogue. Because the principle of civilian control over the security services is sacrosanct that the republic is to survive. And as much carnage as these two actors have, have done with their actions, they've also exposed the security services asserting dominance over the civilian control. And it was difficult to believe at first. It was vague and ambiguous in some ways at first. But when you see their actions from 2015 onward, it's very clear that these guys were canaries in the cloth. You don't have to believe that cutting off the supplies and the support is a good thing to understand it was a necessary thing. I see. I see. Okay. Hey, last question. Have you voted yet? Don't have to tell us who you voted for. That's, you know, private. But have you voted yet? Are you doing early voting? Anything like that? What's your plan? The wife and I went to do early voting yesterday and went to the wrong place. I misread the directions and then found out that we didn't order our ballots in advance, far enough in advance, blah, blah, blah. So we'll just be going, we'll be getting up at 6 a.m. on Tuesday morning. The polls open at 7, so we'll be at our polling place before they open and hopefully not have too big a line. How about yourself? Do you go absentee? Yes, I uh, did the absentee thing and hopefully uh, I'm pretty sure it counts. Excellent. I actually have a little, I have faith in the system. I know that uh, the, the people working there, I know they're, they're going to do the right thing. Well, excellent. I have, when I moved to Pennsylvania, I was shocked to find that their uh, their polling machines are electronic, but don't have paper backups. You know, coming from Ohio, our machines, you have the touch screen, sure, but they print that, but after you review your, your votes and you say, yeah, that's, that's the way I want to vote, they print it out, and so there's a paper record there at the polling place in case anyone needs to challenge anything or check the results. But they don't have that here at the precinct where I vote. I get it. I get it. Okay, Dave, it's been a it's been an enlightening conversation. We talked about a lot of stuff, starting with the election. We talked about uh, the book, People's Republic, <laughs> corporate captains. We talked about Sweden, France, fascism, boardwalk empire, principle versus tribe, orange man bad. And finally, the intelligence agencies. So I think it's a pretty good discussion today. What do you think? I think so, too. <laughs> it's always yep. a fun time chatting with you, Will. Yeah, and I think it's exciting because the next time we chat, the world will be different. <laughs> yes, it will. And hopefully for the better. Hopefully. Hopefully. All right. Let's go ahead and sign off. And I'll let you do the honors. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this presentation of Truth and Narrative. Be sure to check out the show notes for more background on the topics discussed. Please like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Send comments, suggestions, and questions to truthandnarrative at protonmail.com. 